0: Welcome back to Disability Dialogues, a podcast from the Student Disability Center at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Joe Tyner. I use the pronouns he, him, and his, and I am an accommodation specialist at the Student Disability Center. Today, we are going to be talking about the history of disability rights and how they are part of civil rights. To discuss this, we have two guests this week Brittany Otter and Rose Preston. Thank you both for being on the show today.
1: Thank you for asking. Excited to be back.
0: So Britt, we talked with you last week, Um, so will you just give us a quick introduction of yourself again for those who may not have heard our first episode?
2: Yeah, hey everybody, it's Britt again. I use she and her pronouns. I am the Assistant Director for Access and Accommodations at the Student Disability Center.
0: Rose, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. I'm Rose Creston, I use uh, she her as pronouns, and I am the retired Director of the Student Disability Center at Colorado State University,
0: and but you're still a part of the CSU community. Um, you teach on campus, correct?
1: Yes, I teach one course, right? This must uh, the disability experience in society.
0: Previous to retiring, Rose, how long were you at CSU in your role as the director?
1: I was the director for forty years, more than half my life.
0: Wow! And the I think the work you did is still being shown and appreciated on campus. So thank you for all your time and commitment to the office.
1: Well, thank you for that recognition. Yeah.
0: That's why I think um, you're one of the perfect people to talk about this topic today, um, being someone who not only lived through the disability rights movement, but was you know, active in supporting it being the first director of the SDC.
1: When you asked me to uh, be part of this podcast, I had to really think, yes, I was around when the disability movement disability rights movement started and that was in the late 70s 1970s that it all sort of started coming together and i know that we always talk about the ADA but the ADA didn't just happen it it came from the efforts of people who actually started working for disability rights back in the 1970s so there's a lot of history that I could talk about. But one of the things I always want to remember, uh, remind people of is that disability rights started prior to the ADA ever, ever coming around. Um, and it if it hadn't been for the activists in the 1970s, we wouldn't have the ADA today. So that's one of the things I want to, want people to recognize is that it just didn't happen. It took a lot of work. And actually, the disability rights movement started around the same time the independent living movement started. And that they kind of go hand in hand, because it was a time in the history that people with disabilities were starting to think about themselves in a different way. They were starting to be thinking about themselves as not the tragic um, stereotype, you know, and feeling sorry for themselves, but they were thinking about themselves in a more prideful way and in a more identity oriented way. So with those two things coming together, things started happening in the 19, late 1970s that really put on the map disability rights in terms of non-discrimination kinds of activity?
2: Yeah, one of the things um, that we, we've talked about, Rose, uh, that I really appreciated was um, as part of the uh, Centers for Independent Living or the Independent Living Movement in the 60s, the really the foundational events that occurred at the, C, the UC Berkeley campus being so powerful, being that it was an institution of higher education a, a place of uh, <laughs> scientific research, right, uh, medical research, um, which is also where a lot of this kind of medical model of disability comes from, right, but also being uh, that uh, folks like um, Ed, uh, Ed Roberts and, and a lot of other folks who uh, kind of created this really activist, kind of one of the first activist organizations in the disability rights movement, um, kind of created the sense of, like, we, we need access now, right? This emergent, um, necessary, urgent uh, voice to the
1: disability rights movement. Well, one of the things that um, was important to understand is that the people who were working towards um, disability rights uh, were taking patterns after the civil rights act. So, um, and what the activists in the civil rights movement were looking at. And, and part of that was the fact that they were, the demonstration for their rights, it was a way to go about getting people knowing, knowing about what needed to happen. And so they took that, the the pattern of the behavior and the strategy of, of how to make themselves known. So really, it started with the Section 504 of the Rehab Act in uh, 1973. That's the act that had this little tiny paragraph that says anybody receiving federal funds could not discriminate based on disability. And nobody really knew who put it into the law, because the law was not a civil rights law. It was A funding law, but it was in the Rehab Act, and people with disabilities actually found out about it. Judy Human in New York and Ed Roberts in California and across the country, people knew about it and they knew that it wasn't being implemented because the rules and regulations for telling people how to be in compliance with non-discrimination weren't written or they were written, but they weren't signed into law. So they, you know, the activists, disabled activists across the country decided, okay, we'll go try to make this happen. So they met with Joseph Califano, who was the secretary of HEW at the time, and was sort of the person assigned to write up and implement the prototypes of the regulation regulations For 504 for other departments, but he wasn't signing them. He was, he thought it was too expensive. People weren't going to be able to do it. So he uh, postponed doing it. And, you know, the activists went and talked to him. Nope, he's not going to do it. So their strategy was to take over federal buildings. And in, in April of 1977, they did that. And most of them. Um, You know, across the country, they took over federal buildings. A few of them lasted, you know, maybe a weekend or three days, a week at the most. But the one in California, um, in San Francisco, lasted uh, 29 days or 27 days, something like that. And they had to put their life on the line, some of these activists, because they were people with all kinds of disabilities including people who had severe enough disabilities that if they slept, they had to be turned because they would get bed sores if they didn't. Well, once they were in the building, they could not come out. Well, they could, if they came out, they could not go back in. So these had to be diehard activists who would sit in that building for almost a month. They were in that building and they had the, at the leaders had done some work before that and actually got a lot of support in the surrounding San Francisco area from groups like the Black Panthers and other kinds of people who knew what they were doing and why they were doing it, which was the anti-discrimination goal that people wanted. and. They managed to stay in that long and Califano finally gave in and signed them. And from that day on, CSU had to change and all their kinds of places that received federal funds in education, health and welfare. So things happened. And I think what what you see at the CSU today in the uh, Student Disability Center was the result of that law. But once those activists were got this goal, they actually sat down and started at that time to think about an overriding um, a, non-discrimination law that covered not just federally funded entities, and that's when the ADA started. It was it came from that law, and in fact, they used a lot of the language from the the section five hundred four to put into the ADA and to look at that, that connection. But it is one of the things that I think a lot of people don't kind of think about is that it's really different than other discrimination laws. Because if you look at the civil rights law and non-discrimination, they're talking about not using the human characteristic as a factor. But, In disability rights, you have to pay attention to the human characteristic of disability in order to provide the accommodation to provide access. So it is non-discrimination, but there's a little twist to it when you compare it to other discrimination laws. And I think that's one of the the interesting things about um, disability rights and what makes it unique yeah and one of the one of the great things that I love
2: is the the way in which activism looks and and some examples of activism just here in our own state and one of my favorite examples um, is the adapt organization and how it started here in Denver um, I'm on Colfax Avenue right now and um, right on Colfax and Broadway was where um, the adapt, organization started protesting um, inaccessible buses and transportation yeah. as its first issue. And um, uh, in the 1970s, uh, late 1970s, early 1980s. And um, what I love about that is um, it, it, was, it was kind of a, a very much uh, a way to force the community to look at uh, transportation and in, inaccessible transportation for uh, wheelchair users, for folks with mobility disabilities and say, no, you will see us. You will look at us. And one of the things that they would be known to chant would be to say, we will ride. Um, And they would block buses in the front and the back. So they couldn't move without running people over (laughs) Um, and actually, you know, actually try to get into the bus without a lift um, and show people how just, inhumane it is to to provide these services uh, for only able-bodied folks. Um, ADAPT originally was named for Americans Disabled for Accessible Public Transit and then later they were renamed um, Americans Disabled Attendant Programs today uh, because they do a lot of other issues now um, outside of transportation. But there's a plaque actually in Denver on Colfax and Broadway that actually commemorates um, the work that they do, and actually they are one of the reasons that the Regional Transportation District, RTD, exists to this day. So if y'all want to know <laughs> why we have such a great regional bus program, y'all thank
1: ADAPT, because <laughs> they were one of the folks that made it happen. Glad that you brought that up, because that, that's one of the, the examples of how powerful people with disabilities can be if they gather together to address these discrepancies in the law or just in basic human rights. Everyone can get this except us because of that disability and that's depriving us of rights um, that everybody else has. So I think ADAPT is one of the the more radical groups. (laughs) and I really appreciate their work. Yeah, and I,
2: I also wanna tie in because ADAPT's tactics, and especially during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, were actually really similar to the ACT UP tactics and uh, organization um, in the AIDS movement um, to bring awareness to AIDS and to bring awareness to uh, that disease killing the gay and queer and trans yep. community. And just how similar the the, Groups' uh, form of activism and visibility, trying to get the the issues visibility to general population, and say, look, these are basic human needs. Um, and And the number one issue for the number one issue for the for, for uh, at the time um, for folks in um, the queer community for for uh, combating AIDS was just access to medical care and access to drugs that would actually Uh, support good quality care and good quality hospital care. Um, And so, you know, ACT UP would provide, would would do things like, um, you know, spread, you know, fake blood over, um, you know, audience members in a big stadium or would um, stop traffic um, to, um, you know, in a very similar way that the ADAPT would. Um, I also reflect back on that and think about currently how the Black Lives Matter movement operates and how visible the organization is in its commitment to, again, nonviolent, non-violent protest that is very visible and vocal uh, for issues that affect um, our communities.
1: One of the things I, 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 I often think about though is even though the disability community has used those tactics, they get very, very little press. Um, I think that makes it been difficult for a lot of people to even know, that these things are going on. And that's one of the things that I see that the disability community is still sort of marginalized by the press. Because oftentimes the the stories that you hear in the press are, oh, isn't this amazing? This person who's who's blind is, is taking ballroom dancing or something like that. But we don't oftentimes hear about the fact that people with disabilities are out there advocating for their rights to what everybody else has. And it doesn't get a lot of press. So I think that's that's, that's the unfortunate part of making people more aware. It, it's really hard. It's really hard because we have such an idea about disability as it being the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody. And it's like, no, it just is. And they don't really see it that way. So I think we, we're still operating mostly on the medical model uh, perspective of disability as it's something that needs to be cured or minimized or overcome. And it's like, no one overcomes a disability. They just learn how to live with it. And yet we have those messages that are out there that it's extraordinary for somebody with a disability to be doing anything. You know, I oftentimes. I would go into a class and I'd talk about the fact that somebody would see me and they would be so amazed. And I would say, "Okay, I have a job. I, I have a car. I travel. I you know have a house. What do you what what do you see that's so amazing about that? And then why? And it's usually because they didn't think somebody with a disability could do any of that. And I think that's that's the difficulty that I think we have with anything around civil rights: is that we haven't changed the attitude, we haven't changed the belief system, we haven't changed how people think about people who are different. Um, we still see it in that that versus us versus them, and and I think that makes it really difficult to make a lot of change. The the laws that we have are great for. Uh, providing access, Uh, but one of the things that I oftentimes have thought about is that even when we think about inclusion, we're also at the same time um, promoting assimilation because it really looks at people with disabilities as having to be as non-disabled as possible, and that makes it really hard than to be yourself with a limitation. You have to not have the limitation in some way. Um, so it's, it's much more complex. And as I've, I've been out of the job for a while, I, it, it gets more complex in my mind uh, to think about it. But I, I really um, am hopeful for the, the future that if we can address some of the systemic problems that we have with racism in general, we can then start addressing some of the systemic issues that we have around ableism. So, because we have to first recognize that racism exists and then figure out how to get to minimize the impact of that. And then we can take that and apply it to ableism. I'm, that's what my hope is.
0: I really appreciate you sharing that, Rose. And I think I, I completely agree with everything you said, I think our society and our history has been so oppressive and marginalizing to people with disabilities. Um, you know, in our, history, in our history classes, you know, we don't often cover disability rights. We cover the civil rights movements, uh, but we don't talk about disability in that. We don't highlight um, disabled people in history the same way we do um, non-disabled people. Um, our society sets such low expectations of disabled people that when a disabled person is living a normal life that is seen as extraordinary, um, because we have, we, are, we have socialized to have such a low expectation or even we'd have no, no expectation at all. Um, and I agree with you, I think you know, that's some of the work that we are still you know, doing today and still need to continue to do is to combat that systemic social uh, societal ableism that exists and reframe it and you know do what we're doing today and sharing these stories about um disability rights disability history
1: and disability pride i think i think people with disabilities have uh, have grown up thinking they have to be ashamed of it and then when people acquire a disability they have all those old tapes out there about what it means to have a disability and so they they feel ostracized. They feel marginalized and then don't know why. And they think, well, it's my fault. And it's really not their fault. It's the fault of a society who has taken that human characteristic of disability, no matter what it is, and marginalized it and says, you are you don't fit in. And like, how come I don't? <laughs> I'm still this person. So I think, and and the, the other parts about Disability rights is that people join it every single day because they experience disability by accident, by illness, by all those other kinds of ways to acquire limitation. And yet we don't think about something that happens every single day as normal. And it is. But we don't think that way. We think of, of it as um, a tragedy. But it's part of life. You grow old. You'll get the li- limitation, and yet we don't see it as as acceptable.
2: I've been listening to that, and I've been thinking, I've been reflecting on that too. Of like, so so. Oftentimes, we think about you know, disability is an eventuality. Disability is something that is part of of uh, is will be eventually if not already part of everyone's life. And I think about that too in in the ways that I've learned to broaden my own definition of disability beyond what medical experts might consider a disability as a diagnosis or a condition that is diagnosable or treatable by medicine, by the things that we can You know, pay the pharmaceutical industry uh, to produce for us. Um, uh, But I I was reflecting on, you know, who who gets to be in, um, in the activism and in the in what we consider disability civil rights, and what are civil rights, right. And so earlier, Rose had talked about, you know, the disability movement was modeled after the 60s civil rights movement. And, and in addition, like most of the work that's that where the disability activism started were predominantly in neighborhoods of folks of color. Um, Oakland is predominantly a black and brown neighborhood. <laughs> um, and so when I think about that, you know, I think of, what was it, 27-day, 25-day sit-in for the uh, 50, Section 504, right? Um, and the local Black Panther Party coming in and bringing in, uh food and supplies for the people who didn't need at least one square one one meal a day to survive and then i also think about the fbi stopping them from entering the building (laughs) and i think about the the rights and the the experiences that they had to um experience to be part of the disability rights movement right so the different layers that are Involved in the the movement itself, right? And um, you know, the, this idea of okay, so the 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 black folks can get to the door, but it's the white folks who are inside, and maybe not all white folks for sure, right? Because this is this is um, you know, folks who are coming in and who are organized, and and um, it depends on access, <laughs> almost literally, um, but. You know, it became instead of a movement of predominantly folks of color from the community, a movement of people who weren't stopped by law enforcement um, because of uh, racialized uh, assumptions or ideas, people whose bodies weren't being policed in a different way, maybe not because of their disability, Um, maybe it was okay for them to say, fine, you can stay here and die in my office, right? (laughs) Um, if that's what you want to do, but I at least can stop the people at the door who are black and brown and of color from coming in. Right. And so I think there's a lot of ways in which people engage still with a disability rights movement in different ways based on who they are. And, and those are some things that our movement still needs to work through. Um, and I think about, um, you know, non, uh, the, the non-linear medical focused uh, white supremacist views of disability, right, that are not medical model based. They're not, you know, I can diagnose anxiety because we've done studies on anxiety uh, uh, by and for white people. And so here's the drug. And so here you go. Right. And, uh, and for people who have money for it. <laughs> Um, or for this, you know, ulcerative colitis or whatever condition it is. Um, I think of things like racial battle fatigue. I think of generational trauma and generational slave trauma, um, genocide trauma, right? I think of um, the trauma of not only acute incidents but things that are passed down from generation to generation. Um, And, you know, messages that people learn, those are barriers. Those are things that we create to then purposefully as a society make people uh, disadvantaged and disabled by. And so I think in many ways we have to move beyond what this this certain scope of disability entails, because that is our limitation, and go forward thinking about who are we missing? How are we thinking about disability still that is not allowing folks to enter into and enjoy the civil rights that we as a disabled community can enjoy?
1: Well, I do know that when when people start thinking about disability rights, they conceptualize it as white and and it really isn't, but that's what you see. So the separation of the groups that are marginalized happens all the time. And I think one of the things that I look at is that, that's why I think racism and ableism and sex, uh, sexism and ageism, they're all related to keeping people separate and not interlocking or interception, sectioning those, those identities. And for uh, people of color and have disabilities, they've been shafted by the system a lot more than white people have. They don't have the same opportunities because they, they are being judged not only on their disability, but on their race and their color of their skin and, all those other things, and, and they don't have the same advantages. And yet we don't talk about that often. Um, but also when you think about the other groups, how often do they include disability? They don't often include that. So we, we have work to do to intersect those groups together and those identities so that we're working together in union rather than separately and in our silos about certain things. So I like the idea of of the UN because they talk about human rights. And human rights encompasses everybody. And one thing about UN, they have these conventions of... uh, There's a convention for human rights for people with disabilities. And the United States signed it, but they never ratified it. So... We're with Libya and North Korea in not ratifying it. We're keeping company that way. And it's like, why is that happening? But it's because I think the U.S. thinks that they took care of it with the ADA. And the ADA is just the start. It's not the end point. They could do so much more around that because the ADA really looks at accommodating an individual they're not looking at addressing the systemic ableism that's out there yeah
2: yeah i agree there and i and i think too you know seeing folks as human and including their identities and the multitudes and intersectionality that they experience right the the intersectionalities of identity plus the historical and the significance of the oppression systemically and culturally that they experience is also important so yeah it goes both ways yeah. and i i think i totally agree being able to have something that is responsive and is a both and i think is 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 my hope for the future of our movement
0: what do you think is next when it comes to disability rights and advocating in the future what do you want to see happen next what do you think needs to happen next
1: well this is just some ideas I have. I think one of the things that that I noticed from the past is that when people with disabilities got together, they moved mountains. We don't get people together. There is not a reason for them to come together. So we have organizations still like for the blind and for the deaf and you know paralyzed veterans, I, but they're all separate. And there's not a unifying reason for us all to get together to say what needs to happen next because it needs to come from the from the community. It needs to come from the people with disabilities. But we also need to figure out how to intercept with other movements, with other civil rights or human rights uh, identities, so that we're coming together as a as a larger community of that who has been marginalized you know, we've all been marginalized based on a human characteristic and that makes no sense we're all human and anybody could have any of those characteristics at any time and yet we don't see it that way we we see ourselves in groups and we keep when if we're going to keep in our groups it's gonna be very hard for, to amass what needs to happen for like that tidal wave to happen to have everything change. When I think about it too, is that in the 60s, we were fighting for civil rights for African-Americans. <laughs> Why are we still doing that now? And we still are because we have entrenched racism that we don't want to acknowledge. We have entrenched ableism that we don't want to acknowledge. We have entrenched ageism we don't want to acknowledge. We have entrenched sexism that we don't want to acknowledge. We think, oh, we're fine. We have all these laws that pass. But it's, you know, people can be biased and still act on that bias and get away with it. I would like to see something that will bring us all together just as a disabled community, like the Section 504 brought together everybody. Um, But we don't have anything out there yet.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree. I think we've got, I think people know that the law exists and it's a thou shalt do conversation. And what happens when you break a law well, there's a consequence. And sometimes people are willing to live with the consequence. And some people view themselves above the law. I can do whatever I want. The law doesn't touch me. Some people view themselves above the law, like, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do anything to break the law. If I break the law, I'm a terrible person. Uh, and so the law will prevail and they will never, ever break the law and do what they are told. And some people feel that they're at the same level of the law, that maybe they and the law can do a tango and they can bend the law and the law will just kind of step out of their way. And really it's, I don't want disability to be about law. I want right. I want it to be about seeing people as people and, 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 and all, for all of who they are, not just about their disability, but about their whole person. And so it, it, instead of being about what, you know, you have to do or what you're required to do as an able-bodied person, how can we focus and shift on, um, know focusing on the person with a disability right the disabled person and the the lives and experiences and what uh what would be accomplishable what's what's possible um in in our community like this law was created so that literal lives could exist and now they do for the most part and so now that that kind of bare minimum has happened, um, what else is possible? That's what I, I would like the conversation to be about.
1: And I like that, I, I agree with you on that. And I, I always look at the laws, as like, it gives sanction to look at things differently. It's whether somebody does or not is the, the, the question. And how do you get somebody to look at things differently? When we have this history of what disability means, how do we change what disability means? And that's the harder part. Um, and I think it takes, I mean, we, but we did it. We did it in the 70s. We, you know, people came together and said, look at me differently. But no, they said, look at us differently. And that's the part I think we need to look at too. Um, we don't get value. The lives of people with disabilities. Not yet. We think we do, but we don't. When you have somebody in Japan going into a a facility of disabled people and shooting them because he thought it was the best thing to do, there's no value there. And so I think we need to really think about how do we change how people value us? And I think the more people that we get out in the community, the more people that we graduate from CSU and they go out and become somebody, I think it will slowly change.
0: That's also true. And I appreciate both of you sharing that. Um, If our listeners want to learn more about disability rights, disability history, what would be some good resources for places they could look? I always like to recommend the documentary Crip Camp. streaming primarily on Netflix, but I believe it also exists on the internet. Um, it's a really good um, overview of, you know, the, the push for of, um, towards Section 504 and eventually into ADA. Um, I think it does it in a way that's really easy to engage with. So that's something I always recommend to people. What would you both recommend?
1: I have, I've read a book called What We Have Done by Polka. I think I've got his first name. And it's a very good book that talks about the whole reason why disability rights got started. It's a very big book, but it's a very good book. And it talks about some of the, the strategies that individuals made in order to not only get section 504 passed, but also to work with the legislature in coming up with the ADA, because people with disabilities were part of that process. They were part of the creation of the ADA. And I think that's important to understand that when people with disabilities are part of something, it, it means a lot more, I think. It, it covers a lot more. There's a different understanding because when section five or four regulations were written, They were only thinking of people who were uh, using wheelchairs, who were blind or who were deaf. They didn't even think about students with learning disabilities and what would be needed for them. We really need to get people um, thinking about, let's move forward. Uh, I would hope that we could get students who are in college to think about being activists, because. The students in college were the ones who made it happen back in the 70s. College gives them that sense of can-do and competence that is needed to make things happen.
2: I would also just recommend the um, disabilityhistorymuseum.org. Really great uh, disability history museum for the United States. And has a lot of great influential exhibits that are virtual. And you can access from anywhere as long as you have internet um, and covers a lot of the civil rights history, but also uh, more recent history as well.
0: Awesome. Thank you both for sharing. I really appreciate both of you taking the time to come on and talk about this really important subject today. Um, If our listeners want to engage with you or or contact you to learn a little bit more, um, how could they do that?
1: I still have a CSU email, and that's rose.creston, K-R-E-S-T-O-N, at callostate.edu.
2: Everyone can email me at Brittany, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y, period otter, O-T-T-E-R, at callostate.edu. Call me at 970-491-0844. Or you can also tag me on our social medias at CSU underscore SDC.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Um, if anyone would like to contact me again, my name is Joe Tyner. You can contact me at joe, J-O-E tyner T-I-N-E-R, at callostate.edu. If you want to contact the Student Disability Center, you can reach us by phone at 970-491-6385, by email at sdc.callostate.edu, at or you can visit our website, disabilitycenter.colostate.edu. Really appreciate you taking the time to listen to us today um, and keep listening for more podcasts in the future. Hope you have a wonderful day.